That's good. Well, good morning, church family. Uh, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Uh, and by the way, there are, uh, there are some people still who are homesick right now. Um, please be in prayer. Uh, I, I'm, I don't know if it's okay. Uh, okay, I won't say the name. But uh, just, just be in prayer for the people that you look around and you don't see. Um, there are some that are kind of waiting for COVID to, to back off, which it is, which is good. Uh, it's, getting, uh, it's becoming less prevalent right now. Uh, and there are just some, some folks that are um, just not feeling good and needing prayer. So please lift those people up. Um, while you're turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, I wanted to ask, how many of you guys remember this song? Anybody? A few of y'all? Yeah? Most, okay, most of us probably do. Well, you may have noticed the title of the message is a knockoff of a song by who? Right. Yeah, not the who, the Beatles. Um, so now I've got another question for the adults while the kids are finding the bingo pictures, if you kids want to do that. Um, by the way, if you're, if you're new, you don't know what this is, we have bingo sheets out there. And if you, uh, you, you're trying to get a blackout, minus one. There's one picture from that bingo sheet that's missing. Okay, and if you figure out which one it is, or if you don't, I don't care. There's a, a box up here that you can come and take something from. Um, really, it's just one of those things to keep the kids engaged. But anyway, um, I want you to, to, to just answer this question. How many of you folks grew up in church? If you did, will you raise your hand? Did you grow up in the independent Christian church? Okay, most, most of us did, uh, did not. So here's my question for you then. It, did you used to attend children's church at some point at your church? Most of you did. Okay. Do you know this song? Oh, you can't get to heaven. What? In a, what? In a buffalo herd? Is that what you said? I, actually, okay, here's, okay. It went like this. You say, the person sings, oh, you can't get to heaven. And then it's echoed by the people in the congregation or whatever. And then they say, in a, and then they fill in whatever that is, that item is. It'll be like in a motor car, in a motor car. Oh, you can't get to heaven. Oh, you can't get to heaven in a motor car. Does this not sound familiar to you guys? Oh, you can't get to heaven in a motor car because a couple of you, I'm getting a, a few nods and some, no, what are you talking about? Okay, that's all right. That's all right. Because most people, okay, don't think they're getting into heaven with a motor car or roller skates or a Kleenex box. Um, but if I were going to rewrite that song, I would probably um, have some other stuff in it like, you know, oh, you can't get to heaven by your own good works because God knows we're all just jerks or something like, I mean, there would have been something in there. You know, or, or at least, like, I might have, might have had a bridge, you know, that talks about grace through faith, like our Ephesians 2 scripture. Um, but I want to ask you to, I'm going to ask you to just sing one of them with me, okay? And you're going to fill in the blank because you're going to know it, all right? So just repeat after me. Oh, you can't get to heaven. That's all right. By being nice. Oh, you can't get to heaven. By being nice, so you can't get to heaven by being nice. The only way is that's it. Yes. Good job. You guys know it. Right. Okay. Anyway, so you may be wondering what in the world do these two songs have to do with today's text? And uh, the first one's fairly obvious um, as, as we kind of read through today's passage, because there's a guy in our text who thought that he could actually buy God's gift. In this case, the Holy Spirit. With money, okay? And the second song is going to be important later in the message. So uh, let's jump into the Word now. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 8. Uh, remember last week we looked at how persecution began in Jerusalem. And so, so Christians went to Samaria. And, uh, and they began preaching the, the gospel there. And they were accompanied by, 
miraculous signs and by healing. So we're going to pick up in verse 9. I'm going to ask you, just, just follow with your eyes. Just, just follow along as I read through uh, verse 24. And by the way, um, this is unusually challenging for me because, because after reading it and after studying it, I actually had more questions than answers. Okay? And if you're, if you're visiting today or if you're watching online for the first time or whatever, uh, just please know this is not a typical crossroad message. Um, normally, I, I prefer expository preaching. I try to go you know, through a text just a piece at a time, um, but I, I felt led to present this one differently, and so, so just bear with me. I think it's going to be worth it. Okay. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Okay, so when the Bible talks about magic, he's probably not talking about like sleight of hand here. Okay, we're not talking about card tricks or, you know, distraction or, pre, you know, prestidigitation. It, it, was, it was most likely demonic power. Okay, that was, that was being performed through a, a person who is a willing participant. You know, I don't know if you knew this, the, the word for this translated witchcraft is the Greek word pharmakeion. Interesting, because they would use drugs, mind-altering substances, to put themselves in a state to commune with the dead or with demonic powers. There's a reason God wants us to stay away from that stuff. But anyway, so remember the situation. Samaria is this, it's a semi-Jewish group of people, and they've been intermingled with the Assyrians for a long time, so their bloodlines and their culture were not really Jewish anymore. And so uh, their religion, obviously, would also not be fully Jewish, and so they were still expecting a Messiah. The Samaritans were expecting a Messiah just as the Jews were, but, but they only had a partial exposure to Jesus. Okay, and you may remember that. Jesus came through. We talked about that a little bit last week. Uh, he stayed in Samaria for a while. But they, they hadn't heard the fullness of the gospel until Philip showed up. Okay, and in the meantime, this sorcerer named Simon was famous in Samaria for practicing magic in such a way that people saw him as godlike. Like they viewed him as, as being really, really powerful. And so everybody in town, uh, from the greatest to the least, in fact, it's from, from Micron to Megan, that's how the, the Greek says it. Um, and by the way, if your name is Megan, don't get mad at that gesture. Um, but uh, lots, anyway. Anyway, so they, they knew who Simon was, and they had respect for him because he was able to do supernatural things. Okay? And they feared him. But remember, there was also great joy in this city. That was our last verse that we ended with last week, verse 8. Okay, so we're going to read on. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, that's, that's the gospel, okay, they were baptized, both men and women. Okay, this is always the proper response to the preaching of the gospel is for a person to be baptized. Uh, and seeing signs, oh, sorry. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Well, surely he was. Of course he was amazed. I mean, th this, this is very new to him. Imagine how surprising it would be if for years you were the only game in town, right? And all of a sudden, there's a new kid on the block. Oh, oh, oh. No, I'm sorry. Uh, but but wh what are you going to do if you're this guy? If you're being outshined by some new person? You know, you may say, oh, I'm going to get up in their, in their face and I'm going to cause a problem. Or you may say, you know what, if you can't beat them, 
join them, right? And so we don't know exactly what's going on in Simon's mind, but we'll get to that. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to him, sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit, he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, this, this is a really confusing and yet interesting passage, okay? The people of Samaria had believed, right, and had been baptized, and yet the Holy Spirit had not fallen on any of them yet. Now, what does that mean about their state of grace? That's one of these things I have more questions about, so we'll get to that, okay? There's a very good reason this might have happened the way it did. Anyway, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, I want you to pause there. Is this formula mentioned anywhere else in Scripture? The Holy Spirit being given by the laying on of hands in the New Testament. Do you see that anywhere else? Put that in the back of your mind. Um, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Question, church, did Simon have the right motivation? No, clearly not. Okay, so, so Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Uh, did anybody listening to that think, wow, Peter, that's kind of harsh? I mean, did that strike you as, as almost a little over the top? You know, what's the big deal? So he had a misunderstanding of the gift of God. Now, that may be what it kind of looks like from our end, but, but it seems as though the Holy Spirit gave Peter the ability to see into Simon's heart and to know where this, this desire of his was coming from. This was a greedy lust for power. To have one more, as he saw it, magic trick to go in his, his bag. Right? And I, I think God had given Peter supernatural instinct and, and insight. And so he knew what was going on. And he pounced on it instead of allowing it to fester in Simon's mind. You know, nowadays we tend to be really nice. You know? We don't always want to confront. Well, church, listen. I, I, I think at some point we have all experienced a time where we absolutely knew that something that was being said in front of us was or done in front of us was wrong. The Holy Spirit gave us wisdom and we, we just knew it. It was obvious to us, but we didn't do anything about it. Friends, let's decide here and now we are going to address things if we know they are too important to let slide. Decide it. Because the, the circumstances are going to come up. Uh, as, especially as society gets less and less Judeo-Christian ethicized. I don't know if that's a word. But as it becomes more secular. We are going to see these, these, these circumstances, these situations come up over and over. Until the day that, that Christ takes us home. We're going to have to deal with that. We need to decide in advance to be faithful in confronting sin when it's necessary. 
especially in the church. And, and sometimes it, it might seem harsh, but and, and maybe it needs to be, right? So, so that the dire nature of the situation will be apparent. And this is especially for us elders, okay? We, we, need, to, we need to be aware of this. this the, we need to be prepared to challenge bad doctrine and, and, and unrepentant sin and divisiveness. We need to be prepared to, to fight against the things that endanger the body of Christ. Anyway, Peter comes back on Simon, you know, his, his guns blazing, and Simon's answer to him was, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Interesting response. I mean, it, it, it's not, you're right, my heart was wrong and I repent. No, it, it's more like, talk to God for me so I don't have to deal with the consequences of my wicked heart. Now, this, this is just one man's opinion, okay? I, I don't know... For sure. But his response to me doesn't sound like repentance. It sounds more like regret. All right. And what's, what's really intriguing about Simon is that we never hear about him again in the Bible. Like he doesn't show up again. Okay. Now he shows up in, in some second century mythology. Okay. In fact, two, of, uh, two or three of the early church fathers actually, they believe that Simon Magus is what they called him. Simon Magus was the, was the founder of the Gnostic movement which was basically a heretical cult. It, it had plagued the church for decades. It's one of the reasons that John wrote uh, some of the things that he wrote. And see, that's church tradition. It might be historically accurate, but there's nothing in Scripture itself that indicates the fate of Simon the Sorcerer. So, so I have questions, okay? And if you're taking notes in your bulletin insert, you may have noticed that there are three big questions, and then there's a whole lot of sir questions, you know, like little follow-up questions. And, and the, the first big question that this text leads me to ask, and I promise this is relevant, okay, is, was Simon really saved? Now, by saved, okay, I mean declared righteous in God's sight, bound for heaven, name written in the Lamb's book of life, saved. And it seems to me there are three options, okay? There, there are three, three conclusions that people could come to from the text. First, could Simon have briefly been saved and then lost his salvation? I find this to be the least scriptural and the most problematic of the three, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this one. Do you believe that God has accurate knowledge of who is truly saved and who isn't? Yes, but do we? No. We absolutely do not. Okay, why? Because we are finite beings who are constrained by space and time. God, however, is not finite, nor is he constrained by space and time like we are. So from God's point of view, who is not only in the here and now, but also in eternity past and also in eternity future, it doesn't make sense that a person would be justified in Christ, seated with God in the future heavenly realm, and then not. In 1 Timothy 2.19... 2 Timothy 2.19, excuse me. Paul refers to God's firm foundation standing and having a seal with two inscriptions on it. One says, the Lord knows, present tense, those who are his. And the other says, whoever claims the name of the Lord must depart from evil, from iniquity, from wickedness, from sin. Must depart, walk away. So the person who is justified in Christ will then become sanctified. I believe that's a foregone conclusion from God's perspective. So I don't think that's the answer. So then was Simon saved 
but he required a harsh correction and received one because he was still carnal and not walking by the Spirit. I mean, I'd, I'd say that's possible since the Bible says Simon believed and was baptized, right? The Bible says Simon believed and was baptized. And many Christians would point to that and they'd say, well, well, since faith is the prerequisite for justification and baptism is the working out of that faith, Simon was saved. And so if you take Simon believed and was saved at face value, then I have to agree with this one. But there are some biblical reasons to dig a little deeper. Could it be that Simon was not saved because he had the kind of non-saving faith that Scripture refers to in more than one place? And that's where you say, hold up. Wait, what? What are you talking about? Right? What is non-saving faith? I thought we were saved by grace through faith, right? I mean, isn't that what today's scripture that we read says? Yes. But is all faith equal? And I'm going to put faith here in parentheses. You know, I, I'm not always in agreement. I want to say this from the pulpit. I'm not always in agreement with John MacArthur. But I think he has correctly stated that there are three proofs of salvation. And this is very scriptural. Uh, initial faith obedience, and continuing in the faith. And I would argue that is what Scripture teaches us, and, and that is what distinguishes simple belief from saving faith. Now, now this, this can be a difficult concept. I understand that because there is no linguistic distinction in the Greek. There isn't. The word uh, pistis is the word for faith, and it shows up for faith, it shows up for belief, it shows translated trust, it's translated to and trust something. Okay, so the word for faith is used in lots of ways in the Bible. So here's what, here's what I mean by this, okay? Justification is by faith, but it is a certain kind of faith. And this is where it gets really confusing. Okay, the Greek word pistis is used both for faith that saves and so-called faith that doesn't save. Now, how's that? Well, John mentions faith that saves. In, John, in fact, it was Jesus who mentioned it. John is just quoting him. In John 6, 47, when he says, whoever believes has, again, present tense, has eternal life. But then Jesus also mentions a, a transitory type of faith. In Luke 8, 13, when, when he's explaining the parable of the sower, he says, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no what? No root. They have no root. They believe for a while, but in a time of testing, that word can also be translated temptation. They fall away. So we have to look at the context to determine what's being said here. In the first place, Jesus is talking about believing in himself. And in the second, he's talking about believing God's word. Okay? Likewise, in James 2.19, Jesus' brother, that's who wrote it, by the way. It wasn't the apostle James. It was Jesus' brother James. Wrote James. Jesus' brother writes, the demons believe, pistis, believe in one God and shudder. It's the same word for faith. Of course, the demons are not trusting in Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, are they? No, they're not living in obedience and walking according to his word. No, uh, so I think the difference is that the sort of, in quotes here, faith that James talks about is simply mental assent. It's just agreeing with, with some, some statements. It's a faith that's entirely head knowledge. I want you to picture uh, signing a marriage license. Okay? You could sign the paperwork and say you're married, and that may be true in a legal sense, but if you're abusing your spouse and you're cheating on them with other people, then are you really married in your heart? 
Absolutely not. And the consequences of that are devastating. If you're not repentant, your spouse will divorce you and you'll lose them. I think biblical faith works in a similar way. We can, we can believe something that never goes any further than our brains, and thus it's never fully realized. I want you to see the difference between the, the so-called faith in James 2 and the saving faith in Romans 10. Here Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the mouth one, excuse me, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Paul refers to a faith that is in the heart, not just the head. Contrast that to the demons. And it's clear that saving faith coincides with transformation in the heart. Scripture calls it regeneration. It's a brand new thing. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus if you are saved. You are a new creation. Belief that stops in the mind never makes that 16-inch journey to the heart. It, it, it is, it, if it never leads to life change, I think Scripture very clearly shows us it is not saving faith. Some of you may disagree, but I think that Scripture is pretty clear. Okay, now, for the record, the majority view of the commentaries that I've looked at is that Simon was never truly saved. A minority view is that he was saved, but he needed correction. Now, you might be asking, what does it matter to me if Simon was saved or not? Okay, hang with me. <laughs> just, just bear with me. Big question number two, were the Samaritan believers saved? Who? Right? Did we forget about them already? Uh, the, the folks in Samaria that had believed the gospel and had been baptized, were they saved? Scripture says the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on them. Let's ask another question. They'll make it both easier and harder to answer the first one. Okay. I want you to answer me out loud. Can someone belong to Christ without the Holy Spirit? Short answer, no. How do we know this? Because the Bible tells me so. Romans 8, 9, right? It says, you, however, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Okay? So does that mean they weren't saved yet? Despite believing and being baptized? I'd say that depends. Is there a difference between the Holy Spirit's indwelling and falling on people? Specifically under the New Covenant. I'm going to tell you right now, I... I I don't know the answers to all these questions I'm asking. I'm really struggling with this one, okay? Usually I like to get up here and tell you something I'm really, really certain about. This, I'm struggling with this, and you're just going to have to struggle with me. So good for you. Is there a difference? Well, listen, we know in the Old Testament, okay, that the Holy Spirit would often come upon people to perform a specific task or to give a specific prophecy, and then he would leave again. The only, the only person in the Old Testament that we are specifically told received the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit was King David. Although there are some hints that others did too. Elijah, Elisha, Moses, we think they may have. Okay, We see in the, New, in the uh, Old Testament, it talks about the Holy Spirit coming on someone forever, and that's referring to who? Really? Who's the Holy Spirit going to come on forever? Jesus. Yeah, right, good job. Yeah, Christ, Jesus. That does show up in Isaiah. Um, Anyway, in the, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit 
apparently takes up permanent residence in Christians, and he's referred to as a seal on God's people. That was in our, our passage from this morning, from Ephesians chapter 1. At the beginning of the church, though, the Holy Spirit often manifested both visibly and audibly. Okay, remember the, the rushing sound of the wind, the flames of fire, the tongues? You know, so, so then can a person have the Holy Spirit indwelling without a supernatural manifestation? Is it possible these Samaritans were saved and had the Holy Spirit indwelling but had not yet received the Holy Spirit in a visible way as the apostles did? If so, there would have to be more than one meaning to the phrase receiving the Spirit. I, I would argue that it, it appears that people can have the Holy Spirit indwelling without miraculous manifestations because most of us probably didn't see fire on our heads or speak in tongues when we came to faith and got baptized. I think some of us probably have experienced those gifts. I don't have those gifts. I've never experienced uh, the gift of tongues. And it's been speculated that the reason that the Samaritans didn't receive the Holy, Spet, the Holy, Spit, the Holy Spirit yet visibly is that God wanted them to see a physical connection with the Jerusalem church. I want you to hang with me on this because this makes sense. If you think about it, uh, there's been a schism okay, between the Jews and the Samaritans for a long time. right? Like, they pretty much hated each other. Jesus helped to bridge that gap. And the Christians are beginning to preach to them, so, so they're bridging that gap too. But, but maybe God wanted the church to send the Jewish apostles to Samaria so that the Jews and Samaritans would realize this is all one big church. And salvation comes from the Jews. That's what, that's what Scripture said. Okay, So, in fact, Jesus said that to the woman at the well. So, when the Samaritans... They began showing the supernatural manifestation of the Spirit. The Jews couldn't deny that they were part of the body of Christ. And the Samaritans would see that they needed the connection to the Jews so they wouldn't try to create like a separate but equal church, right? They'd have to understand we are all part of the same body. And I think that makes sense, okay? But what about the other side of that? In the New Testament, in the New Testament, do we ever have manifestation of the Holy Spirit without His indwelling? There is no evidence... Okay, in the New Testament, of the Holy Spirit coming and going like he did in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus does say, like where the wind blows, it's where the Spirit goes where he wants, okay? But this is the argument some people use for what happened in Acts chapter 10. They would say that Cornelius and his family weren't really saved when they believed and visibly received the Holy Spirit because they said maybe the Holy Spirit isn't indwelling yet because they hadn't been baptized. Personally, I think that's a stretch, okay? But let's not forget, even though Peter witnessed the Holy Spirit falling them, uh, on them, he didn't say, meh, well, you guys don't need to be baptized then. No, what did he do? What did he immediately say? Get them baptized. He said, they received the Holy Spirit just as we have. We need to baptize them. Okay? And, and sorry, I'm getting ahead of us. That story comes along in a few weeks. But my point is, this passage, along with a lot of things in the book of Acts, reminds us that God is sovereign. Okay, And saving his people is his prerogative. And so his gift of salvation may not always be quite as formulaic as we want to make it. Were the Samaritans saved? I'll tell you this. Whether they were or not before the laying on of hands, and I believe they were, but either way, they certainly were afterwards. Okay? They certainly were afterwards. And so, listen, if you're, if you're pulling your hair out and you're thinking, Simon, Samaritans, blah, blah, what does this have to do with me? Here's where we address that. Here's where we address that, okay? Discussions like this about the true nature of salvation, justification by faith, the roles of baptism and obedience, sometimes they become, they become academic when the fact is no Christian should ever be unbaptized and no Christian should ever be living in disobedience. 
Now, God knows the heart, but we should see the fruit. Amen? We should see the fruit in our own lives, in the lives of one another. And so, so all of this discussion leads us to our final big question, number three. Am I saved? Are you saved? Let's talk a little bit about assurance. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul clearly says, examine yourselves, brothers and sisters, to see if you're in the faith. Check the fruit. Examine the evidence. Are you in the faith? Look at what your life is producing. So here's where we put a bow on this whole discussion. This is the direction I believe God wanted us to go today. Just because... You've claimed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Just because you've said a prayer or even been baptized, that doesn't mean you're saved. So to, to revisit the three points from earlier that help serve as evidence that we are truly saved. First, you must have initial faith in Jesus. So you need to ask yourself, is my faith truly in Jesus Christ? Is my faith really not, not an idolatrous Jesus of your imagination, you know, Jesus that, that, that winks at sin and, and lets you live the way you want and not, not the false Jesus from one of these cults like the, the, the Mormon cult or, or the Jehovah's Witness cult that believes he's a created being, you know, as opposed to to one with the father or something other than what the Holy Bible teaches us. The Bible says this is who Jesus is. You need to put your faith in who the Bible says Jesus is and what God did through him. OK, so. Is your faith in Jesus? Do you believe that he is the one and only son of God who is also one with God, who was born of a virgin, who is fully divine and fully human, who lived a life completely without sin, who went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin, who suffered and bled and died as the perfect sacrificial lamb of God and then rose again after three days and is now at the right hand of God in heaven, interceding for his people and who demands faithfulness from us. That is the Jesus in the Bible. Do you believe in that Jesus? Do you believe in that Jesus? That's Jesus Christ. And our faith must be in him, not in our own goodness, which is non-existent, okay? Not in uh, the, the sacred church rites that we've performed or had done to us or the words we've said. In Him! In Him! That's where our faith ought to be. And so, if your faith is truly in Jesus Christ, then the answer to the rest of these questions ought to be a resounding yes. Okay, but but I, I want you and if that's you, if you can say yes to the following questions here, I want you to let your spirit just be be buoyed up by the wonderful privilege of belonging to the Lord and feel the assurance of salvation. That is a blessing that God provides for faithful Christians. If you can't, however, answer yes to the following questions, all is not lost for you yet. You need to ask God. For conviction of sin, weep and mourn for yourself and repent of your sins. Turn toward the Lord and receive forgiveness. Okay, so, so here's the next question, friend. Are you walking in the light? Are you walking in the light? This is a biblical way of asking whether your life is marked by obedience to the Lord rather than rebellion. Scripture is very clear on the necessity of walking in the light. If you, if you ever wanted to spend some time 
an honest, sincere self-examination to see if you're really in the faith, read through the book of 1 John and determine whether the fruit of your life is evidence that you belong to Christ because 1 John has a series of litmus tests. Read through it. There's a number of scriptures in there that just jump out at the reader. We're going to look at a few of them, okay? In chapter 1, starting in verse 4, John says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. Get this. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Well, that's profound. That's profound. But if you're a left-brain kind of thinker, John might sound a little hippy-dippy to you, you know, and you might want some more concrete examples. So let me refer you to Galatians 5, again, <laughs> where Paul gets a little more specific. He says, the effects of the corrupt nature are obvious. And I use the God's Word version because it's a little bit less churchy sounding. It gives us a more of, a, of, a, of a, uh, a common language explanation. He says, illicit sex, perversion, promiscuity, idolatry, drug use, hatred, rivalry, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambition, conflict, factions, envy, drunkenness, wild partying, and similar things. He goes on to say, people who do these kinds of things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty cut and dried. But the spiritual nature, the fruit of the Spirit, produces love, joy, peace, patience. You said long-suffering. Is that New King James? Yeah, good version. Long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A verse two later, he says, listen, this is so very important. Listen, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their corrupt nature along with its passions and desires. So what does your life look like? Are you walking in the light as he is in the light, as Christ is in the light, producing those, those beautiful fruit of the Holy Spirit? Or are you producing sinful fruit from the flesh that lead to hell? If you've not taken this seriously before, please, friend, take this seriously now. Take it seriously. Look at the fruit of your life. Look at the fruit of your life. Friend, do you love the Lord? You might claim you do. There are people who claim they do, and they're still living in sinful rebellion. Do you, do you realize if that's you, then Christ would say that you are lying to yourself? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The same disciple that recorded those words later wrote, by this, listen, listen, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, John says, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, he says, in him the love of God is perfected. That's from 1 John 2. Now, that doesn't mean you'll never sin. In fact, just, just a few verses before this, John makes it really clear the sin is inevitable. 
Okay? It does happen. But that's not, that's not what our life is supposed to be marked by. Okay? It does mean, what he's saying here is the trajectory of your life will be toward obedience, not disobedience. It will be Godward. The trajectory of your life should be aimed at Christ. And, and, and before we start thinking to ourselves, well, I don't habitually do any of those things on Paul's naughty list. Just remember, the, the only part of obeying Christ is not just doing, uh, not doing certain things. I, I may have said that confusedly, and I apologize. Following Christ doesn't mean just not doing bad things. Is that better? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the hardest part of living a Christian life is to live as he commanded and to live in love. And so one of the best ways of determining whether you really love God is whether you love your brother. So do you? Do you love your brother? I love how this brother is looking at his sister like, mm. <laughs> Do you? Again, 1 John, this time it's, it's chapter 4, verse 20. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. He says, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Think about it. Be honest with yourself. You know, Simon, whether he was truly saved or not, I don't know, he deceived himself. I mean, he probably thought his heart was pure, right? I mean, he, he was caught up in, in the, the movement of the church and this explosive growth and just swept along by the emotion and feeling the spirit of joy in the city. And yet he still somehow thought he could pay to have the Holy Spirit of God. He thought he could pay for that privilege. His heart was wrong. And, and Peter called him out, and I'm, I'm glad he did, because this, this story is a, is a great reminder that, that we might just be kind of, you know, piddling along in life and identifying as Christian, but with the wrong heart about it. Maybe we're in the gal of bitterness. Maybe we're in the bond of iniquity. And if that's the case, what must we do? Listen, here's the key. Listen, we must press in deeper into Christ. Press in deeper into Christ. Abide in Him. Remain in Him. Not, not feel condemned because we're, because we're mess-ups and turn our backs. Not walk away feeling marginalized because we've been corrected. Listen, press in deeper even, or, or especially if you're concerned that you're not able to answer yes to these questions, then know this, know this. God loves you. You. God loves you. The God who made all this loves you. He sent his son Jesus to die for you. God loves me. God loves you. He wants you to repent. If you can't answer to these yes to these questions, he doesn't want you to say, well, I, I, I've tried my best. I'm done. I'm walking away. He wants you to repent and to turn to him and seek his mercy. Put your faith in him. In him. Not in how often you go to church or how much you give or, or, or how good you are. Put your faith in him. And when it, when it, wherever you feel you've landed on these questions, this last question, th this echoes the final proof of salvation. Will you persevere? Will you continue in him? I'm convinced that, that 
I've said this before, but those who truly belong to Christ have been justified, are being sanctified, and will be glorified, as Romans 8 says, when they come to the end of their life on this earth. But those who, and I'm putting this in quotes, those who believe for a time, who believe as the demons believe, they are not a part of God's people. Again, 1 John, he he mentions some false believers in chapter 2, saying, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So friend, here's the deal. If you leave, if you walk away from Christ and you, and you, you walk away from, from the fellowship of believers, you are on your own. And guess what? You can't save you. You can't do it. But if you continue on, as a part of the body of Christ, loving God, loving one another, living your, your, your flawed but striving to obey lives, you know, living those lives by faith in Jesus Christ, then you will show in the end that you were saved all along. The blood of Christ has cleansed you from all sin, and you will spend eternity forever with your Lord Jesus. But you need to persevere. It's sad to say there will be many on that day Jesus said that will stand before me saying, but Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? He says, I never knew you. We may think we know Jesus. Does he know us? Do we belong to him? Are you truly his child? You know, that initial faith is something I think most of us can say, yeah, I've I've felt that, I've experienced that. But where are you now? Are you being obedient? If, you've, if you claim to be a Christian, but you've never been immersed, guys, that, that's not like something that just needs to be somewhere down the list. That's the first thing you need to do. Jesus commanded, he commanded me. He commanded his disciples to make disciples. He said, go, baptizing them. That word is immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to what? Obey all that I've commanded you. We need to be being obedient, guys. If you've never done that, you need to do it today. We even warmed up the baptistry a little bit just in case. Okay? A little bit. Sorry. (laughs) But it's, it's ready. If you've never done that, do it today. Don't put it off. And if you've done that, but you're, you're saying, you know, I'm walking in sin. I'm, I'm. I, my, my, my language is foul. You know, I'm not loving my brother. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm shacked up with somebody. I'm do, you know, if you're in a place where you're like, I know that I'm, I'm being disobedient. I'm walking in rebellion. Stop it. <laughs> Just stop. You have the power with Christ's spirit living in you. You have the power to overcome sin. Do you realize that? You realize 1 Corinthians 10 tells you there is no sin that attacks any of us except what is common to man, he says, and God will give you a way out of it. You don't have to give in. I know that we're going to make mistakes. I know that we're going to sin. But if you're living in an unrepentant pattern of sin, you must stop it. Stop it. Turn toward Christ. And so this morning, if, if you're in any of these places, I want you in heaven. I want to be in heaven with you. I want us all to be together with the Lord. We've got to persevere, guys. It's not just about, you know, back in 1984, I said this thing and walked down the aisle. No, you've got to live it. If your faith is truly in Jesus, you will live it. Amen?